his mind. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, author and psychic of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and monthly co-host Cap Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. And this episode is being sponsored by Tarot by Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. And if you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Adam Lippi. He is a world-renowned filmmaker, or independent filmmaker in Philadelphia, and he made the movie called Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. What's up, Adam? Hey, Gary, how are you? Are you going to update that uh, Everything Imaginable 2020 every year, or just... No, it's always going to be like 2020, kind of like, um, what was that show, 2020, you know, with Barbara Walters? Yes. News show, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'll just stick with the 2020. I mean, you should you should take advantage of the association with a news show. Hope they don't sue you over it, I guess. Just keep, you like, push that. Like, this is news. Just keep saying this is news over and over and over. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? I've been sued by Barbara Walters before, and I won. Oh. I mean, I'm glad that went well. Yeah. Haven't you been sued yet? Uh, in my life, sure. But uh, not by Barbara Walters. No, by anybody famous? No, no, no one famous. No. I mean, I, I got, go- I've got goals. I mean, maybe that should be my goal, right? Is it, you know, the next next movie I make, I got, I got to get sued by. I, maybe I should just pick a celebrity and then just That's put, my... put their name, put their name in the movie, say something. What celebrity uh, would you want to be sued by? Well, so there's the there's what's known as the Streisand effect, right? So, but I know it in two a different way. But the, the way people know it is like she had her house on Google Maps and she objected. And then that, of course, drew attention to her house. And then everyone knew where she lived. Mm-hmm. And basically, you, you draw attention to yourself by – and if you did it deliberately where you, where you uh, made fun of somebody so you knew they would sue you to get attention to your project, you know, their best bet is to ignore you anyway. But I knew it in a different way. When I was a, a production assistant in high school, I was on a set with a, a guy who had been a camera guy on um, – a movie that Barbara Streisand directed called The Mirror Has Two Faces. And uh, the version of the Streisand effect is actually the opposite of what we know it as. Because what they would do is that she was such a perfectionist and she was so persnickety and she was such a control freak that no matter what they did, they would light the set perfectly and then she'd go come on the set and go, oh, this is horrible. Do this, do this, change these things, blah, 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 and go on and on and on for several minutes. And they would get frustrated and they'd have to do you know, they have to change everything for a couple of hours. Now they've lost a couple of hours that day on a 12-hour day, before, you know, because you don't want to go to overtime on a, on a union shoot like that. So, they had to, so what they would do is they would light it perfectly, and then they would put a terrible, like, kind of, like, center of frame. So when she walked onto the set, it would be, like, right in her eyes. So she would go, oh, get rid of that. It's terrible. And they go, oh, we're so sorry, Miss Streisand. And then they'd turn it off and then be ready within two minutes. So it's sort of the opposite effect. So I guess you have your choice of... 
how do you, which drives in effect are you aiming for? Do you want the one where you do something distracting in order to get their attention or you, uh, you, you do something offensive in order to get their attention? I guess because it really doesn't, you know, it's an either or situation. Mm-hmm. Either way, I don't, you win. I, don't know, I don't know if I prefer. Well, go ahead. But, but which celebrity would you want? I mean, shouldn't if I'm going to Streisand effect? Shouldn't I? Like, you're going to go. With, you're going to go with Streisand, Barbara Streisand. Well, maybe you know what? How about James Brolin, her husband? Or if that's I don't know if they're married. Maybe do it that way. Maybe like you know, just start insulting his performance in I don't know Pee Wee Her- Pee Wee's Big Adventure or something like that. Hmm. Which nobody remembers that he's in near the end playing Pee Wee Herman. Um, or or just pick something at random and just start you know maybe that's the best way to get attention. Like you know we're you know all independent filmmakers struggle in their own way because. You know, uh, as, as I'm a, a, a an upbeat kind of guy, as you know, Gary, which is the mm-hmm. opposite of true. Uh, 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 independent filmmaking is a series of disappointments, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you it, it takes forever to get financing. You finally get the financing, and then oh, I need the crew, and I need the cast, and you can't do it because you can't afford them, or I can't schedule it, or what all these things. Then you have all these big dreams. And then everything is a series of concessions. And it's not that the result is always bad. It's just that it's a series of frustrations. So even if by chance you actually finish the movie and then you get it released, oh, what are you doing with distributors? Or it comes out in the theater, but nobody goes to see it because there was no promotion behind it. And, you know, you've got to pay money. And it just goes on and on and on. And then it just kind of disappears into the market. And that's 99% of independent films. And that's if everything went right to that point. Since it's <laughs> So... Um, uh, I lucked out in that most things went very badly and I got through it and and I'm pleased with the result, but um, uh, it doesn't mean like, you know, I'm suddenly rich. I still have to have a regular job to finance whatever the next projects are. I have a friend who insists that by my third film, someone will actually be paying for it other than me. And I don't know if that's true. I'm going to agree, that's I'm going to uh, agree uh, with that friend. That, that by the third film that someone will... Yes. Well, then I should make the third film on some like truly like uh, small and uh, insignificant subject that uh, nobody would want to see, and then maybe someone will give me a uh, hundred thousand dollars to make it or something. Like that. I wonder or what the, what, what would be like the world's most insignificant plot for a movie. Um, I don't know a heist movie where they're stealing tapestries or something. Hmm. Um, well, that's pretty significant there, I think. Well, because I'm, you know, those of you listening, and I realize nobody is watching this other than Gary and I, and but listening, they are listening. But right behind Gary is a tapestry of, it looks like, is that Buddha? Yeah. Um, so imagine there was just somebody, like, stealing all the hippie tapestries from every dorm room in college. Hmm. Um, in the same, you know, or, or uh, you know, in my area, would be it would be, like, stealing all the uh, Boondock Saints posters or something like that. From <laughs> <laughs> every freshman in college oh. you're also from philly so somebody could steal like the rocky statue that's true i'm actually not from philadelphia i'm from new york but oh um, okay i uh i have lived there, in right? the philadelphia area since uh 2008 um but uh i i wouldn't personally i mean i think just the notion that uh, i mean i'm sure other people have brought it up the notion that uh that there's a there's a fictional person near the art museum as a statue of pride is bizarre and not a real boxer you know Maybe <laughs> like, any other, any number of Philadelphia boxers would, would have been more appropriate as opposed right. to you know a dude who made up a story. Okay, that's fine, but yeah, yeah forget about like you know Joe Foreman or Joe Muhammad Frank. Ali or any of those guys. 
Let's put right. Sylvester Stallone out there. Well, Joe Frazier specifically because he's a Philly fighter mm-hmm. and he had a particular kind of like you know spirit that he would he would take a pounding and then, and then come back, which I guess is you know the notion of the Philly spirit in that sense. Yeah, I guess so. If, especially if you're an, like an Eagles fan or yeah, or an Eagles fan. I am, I am none of those things. So so the uh, the stares that I would get when walking into uh, uh, when I when I was hosting. Um, Film screenings in Mount Airy uh, more than a decade ago. I have a Jets jacket that I was wearing, New York Jets jacket. And people would stare at me and throw me out of places for wearing Wow, I'm now, surprised they let like, you live. I know. What, you, I'd be like trying to hand out flyers and they'd be like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Get out of here. You're not allowed to wear that jacket. And, you know, you just go back to that whole thing about that old Seinfeld bit about rooting for clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know, if uh, your listeners may know the bit, but it's basically the idea is that, uh, um, you know, uh, you root for a guy because he's on your team, and then all of a sudden he gets traded, and you know now you boo him, even though he's just all he's, all that's happened is he's wearing a different shirt. Um, and it's this weird thing that people have where they where they oh well it's my home team it's a it's it's a you know he he associate and it's just like this is business I don't know why you would get so attached to this kind of thing these are guys trying to make money for their families and all that stuff and yeah they have fun and they play a game and there's all this. You know, all these uh, side attachments that they have to deal with that most people don't and they have short careers and all all that is is, you know, they made a business decision and that's who that's the team they're playing for. I'm sure there's some sort of pride, but it's also just like that's what sounds good to the press. No, I just watched stuff. a movie last week and it was about had Robert De Niro in it and he's a he's in Philadelphia and he's like a bookie. Oh, you're watching Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought it was actually a good movie. It's a pretty good movie, yeah. Uh, was it Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, rare role for Chris Tucker, who had disappeared for decades at a time. Wasn't been in a movie <laughs> between you know, no movies between Rush Hour two and Rush Hour three, and then nothing after that until Silver Linings Playbook, and then maybe he'll show up in something over the last twenty years, but not much. What does he do in the time in between? I mean, he doesn't have to. I mean, I know he did stand up for a little bit. He performed, but I guess if you don't want to play the game, why should you have to? Like, How do you, know, you, you live? Do you need money? Well, I mean, if you made twenty million dollars making Rush Hour three, you don't have to work again if you don't want to. Well, some of these guys go broke. They make twenty million dollars and they're broke in a year. That happens, yeah. If they don't have good financial advisors or people steal from them, that's really common, especially in sports, because these guys go to college and they're not really equipped to, you know, handle finances and handle. Um, you know, the, the fame and they're not, you know, or any of that stuff. And they're not really prepared for like, you know, the entourages that are around them. And then within three years, their careers are over because they had injuries and uh, they got nothing. And then they're usually broke. There's a pretty good uh, 30 for 30 episode about it called broke. It kind of covers like how this mindset and how, why it's so frequent. And it's very obvious when you're watching the documentary, you're like, yeah, yeah, I totally get why these guys all go broke. And I never understand the, the pressure, like the, uh, the, you know, people saying, oh, he's a bum, oh, he, you know, did this. But I'm like, I don't know if, you know, people win the lottery, they also go broke pretty fast because you don't know how to handle the money. You don't, you don't have financial advisors who aren't going to steal from you. You don't, you don't have the insulation. Like the, the jump from being poor to rich is, a, is not one that's just in your pocket. It's mental, too. And, you know, there, there's not a lot of training for it, although there should be. Hmm. Just like the same thing with fame. Like you should, you should train these actors like, hey, you're going to be famous, and these are all the things that's probably going to happen to you. you got to protect yourself and 
You're going you're gonna to get hangers on. You're going to get all sorts of things. You're going to have to get, watch what you say in public. You're going to have to, you're going to have to follow what, uh, I don't know if you've seen Bull Durham, uh, mm-hmm. Gary. Yeah. So there's that wonderful scene where, uh, Kevin Costner is teaching, um, Tim Robbins all the cliches he's going to say. Like, you know, it's, we got to win the game. We got to win one game at a time. It's a long season. It goes through all the cliches and Tim Robbins goes, that's really boring. And he's like, yeah, that's the point. You know, <laughs> essentially you don't want to say anything interesting because they're going to stick that to you if you do, and you're going to annoy somebody. So you might as well not say anything interesting. You might as well be the most boring interview in the world because that's safe. It's a bit better if you're an athlete, you can be a really boring person, mm-hmm. you know, at least publicly. Um, but uh, as an actor, I guess you have to have some flavor or some brand that you're selling. I think a little more complicated now that everyone's just selling their brand. What's your brand, Gary? My brand, I don't know. I'm just laid back. I don't care. I did, you know, we were talking about the lawsuit thing. I did challenge Joe Rogan to a fight high on angel dust. Okay. I never heard back from him. I mean, who's going to ref this and who's providing the angel dust? Creating your own I, I, I can get the dust. Right. But then is he going to be He's going to be okay? Who's going to sample it? Sample the dust? Yeah. You know, to make sure that it's legit and he's not being poisoned. Or well, like, he declined the offer, but I mean, I would have allowed you to sample the dust. No, I don't know anything about angel dust specifically, but uh, the he declined it or he didn't acknowledge it? He didn't acknowledge Oh, okay. That I mean, if it sounds if it sounds better for you to say that he turned you down, that he's scared of you, I would go with that one. Well, I think it's he. Not, I think it's he, not true, but you should go with it. Oh, I think he fears me. Oh, I think you're probably uh, absolutely correct. In, in fact, in version, June, in this he, version of reality, in June, he's going to be in uh, Atlantic City. Okay. I was thinking about going down there and out in front of whatever venue he's at and holding up a big sign that says he's just a big fucking pussy. I mean, I guess that's a way to go. Like, what, what do you hope to gain from that? Publicity. Publicity for what, though? I thought you were laid back. I am. But I need listeners. <laughs> then, what, then what do you want to get beat to a pulp by either him or his fans? He won't beat me in a fight. I mean, he probably would. No, but I'm, I'm, I am undefeated. I mean, oh, zero and zero is pretty. I mean, I'm undefeated, too, by no, that no, rush. I've been in quite a few fights. I've never lost a fight. Well, good for you. When you, you fight, you fight dirty. Is that why? I'm really dirty. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll poke out your eyes, kick you in nuts. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it takes. But what if he's got like, what if he's got longer arms and legs and all that stuff? He's actually really short. Oh, I'm sure he is. Yeah, but he might be compact. Might be stocky and just. Like, he, he's stocky, you know. but he's short. He does. He definitely does not have the same reach as me. Well, I mean, every so often during this conversation, what I'm going to do is just subtly and unsubtly plug my movie. And I'm going to, and this will be the first time I'm going to do it. So, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me is a uh, viral pandemic horror comedy that uh, uh, you can now see for free. It originally came out at the Colonial Theater in 2020 uh, during the pandemic. And it's uh, about what happens uh, uh, when a virus gets loose in inner city Philadelphia and the uh, disease uh, causes massive dehydration. But because the disease, it, because it gets loose on the hottest day of the year, um, nobody can tell who's hot and sweaty and who's just infected. And it causes massive dehydration. People are mostly water, so people are start attacking each other for their liquids. And the military sees what's going on, gets caught on a viral video, and they try to stop it. They go to a local hospital, think, hey, maybe we'll slow this down, come up with an antidote or whatever or a cure, or, and they realize they can't do it. And so they just uh, fence off the inner city and let everybody die. And this was finished uh, a week of the pandemic in 2020. But you can now see it for free 
on both Plex through your Roku, or you can just Google it, uh, or um, uh, there's also uh, Zumo, which is through Comcast. But again, you can just Google it, and it's streamed for free with uh, commercial interruption. It will be Amazon mm. on Amazon fairly soon as well. Wow. Uh, you go to waitwaitdon'tkillme.com for the direct links if you don't feel like following what I just said, and that's fine because I have put up the links there. As I said, it's a, it's a feature film. You can watch it. And it's mostly a, a bizarro comedy about these sorts of things. But go ahead. You were going to say something, Gary. So that's pretty awesome. Like, like, so, so now it's out there for, for free, but it has commercials. Like, Do you still profit from it? Do you get a cut of what they make off the commercials? Yeah. So how it works now. So, so distribution is its own long, boring conversation. And, and you know, if I know you, Gary, I know you like long and boring. So I'm going to give you that conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm, assuming, I'm assuming that's what, you, what you're I, after. I live for long and boring. Okay. So uh, it's been very difficult to make money uh, on independent films for a long time. And uh, mostly you're going to sign a, a series of valueless contracts in which um, uh, people promise to get your movie all these different places, but you're never going to see a check for it at all. And they have things in there like um, minimum guarantees, which is basically the money that you have to surpass to, to earn before they send you, before they get to the split that they've agreed to you with. So say you sign with a company and I'm not going to name any, but like the, the minimum guarantee, sorry, not the minimum guarantee, the um, marketing minimum. The minimum guarantee is something you want. That doesn't exist anymore. The marketing minimum is, say, $5,000 or $10,000. Say it's $5,000. So the first $5,000 goes in the distributor's pocket. They get to keep it. And after that $5,000, then there's a split of, let's say, if we're generous, 70-30. 70 in your favor, 30. So every cent after that $5,000 is split 70-30. Um, now, most films don't get to that $5,000 to $10,000 range anyway, so you're never going to see a penny. So there are alternate ways of doing it now. So one of them is called Film Hub, in which you upload your film, and then Film Hub takes 20% on the back end, and they connect you to hundreds of different streaming sites that you've probably never heard of, but you can market it towards it, or you can get it on foreign Amazon. You can get it on, which you could not do on your own. You can get it on regular Amazon. You can get it on Tubi. You can get it on all these different places that were not possible uh, on your own because they they're sort of a uh, a central it's called a film hub and they're like they're a marketplace and they can just push that your film to them now they're not marketing it for you necessarily they're just offering it but they don't make any money if you don't make any money so mm-hmm. you do make money but we're not talking lots and lots of money anyway so to answer your question technically yes you you make some money but you know we're not you're you're not, you're not feeding a, a family of uh, of half a dog on this either. Hmm. A very, very small dog, not even feeding half of it. <laughs> cat? Um, I guess it depends. I mean, cats seem to be able to fend for themselves, so maybe you can feed a quarter of a cat. I don't know. A very, very healthy cat, though. So, no so this is cat. really, really inspiring to new filmmakers. Uh, we should be, I, yes. I mean, I mean, somebody's going to listen to this episode, and they're going to hear about your success, and they're going to run out there, and they're going to go out and make the best film ever. And I'm, yeah, sure, don't worry about and, I, and I'm sure yeah. they're going to invest every cent they've earned for the last 10 years in it. I mean, you have to be doing it for yourself. You, if you're not doing it for yourself, you're wasting your time and you're wasting your emotions and you're wasting your energy because uh, assume that no one outside of the people in your movie is going to see it. Um, and if you go in with that assumption and you go with that assumption that you're not necessarily going to get reviews and that you're not necessarily even necessarily going to get it released, you can get it released at least through Film Hub or all these other options. You can pay aggregators. There are options in order to do it, but it doesn't mean anyone's going to see it, and you're going to have to probably spend more marketing the movie than you will actually bringing in it. You'd have to spend what they say is 20% of your budget on marketing, but I don't really think that's necessarily going to 
result in a huge uh, uh, paycheck unless you make it about whatever a current issue is. Now, I made a movie that happened to be about a viral pandemic, and yet here I am on Gary's show, so clearly it didn't work out, right? <laughs> um, now, I've been on Gary's show. This is the third or fourth, maybe fifth time. I yeah. Think. Um, always talking about the same movie, but not, not in a couple of years. And it's not, it's not personal to Gary. I mean, it is personal to Gary. Um, I must be this desperate just to be here. Is that, is that, is that the fundamental? Well, before we um, move on to that though. Yeah. You know, you said you have, you have, if you're going to make a movie, you have to make it for yourself. Yeah. So I interviewed this guy once who said he made his movie out of spite. Oh, that was me. <laughs> I also made it out of spite. I make. I think that's a very interesting driving factor. Um, oh, you might interview somebody else. Did someone else say no? That it was you. Oh, okay. You. No, that's true. You, but you see, you need you need a motivator, and because um, I don't have. A, uh, sometimes I, I'm in the office with my boss, and I'm making him laugh, and he'll say something like, uh, "Why aren't you a stand-up comedian?" And I'll say, "Because um, I don't have that need." I don't need the validation. I don't have that thing, that thing to get up on stage and have people laugh. And then I, you know, build off of that. I don't, that thing that I think is missing from people like comedians, mm -hmm. that they need that. I don't have that. So, uh, I have enough confidence, right? I have a sense of what's funny. And if I see something that I'm not sure is funny, then I'll go, no, it wasn't that great. That wasn't that funny, but I'm not going to be like purely arrogant about it. And I, I certainly did make this movie out of spite, but uh, and I hope to have uh, – I have other projects that I'm working on that are also based on spite, but for different reasons. And you just have to find something that you're focused on. Now, you need not make the movie out of spite, but you can. And it is a very interesting motivating factor. If you're not interested in being famous or rich, and you're not going to get famous or rich making independent films anyway. Um, and if you want – and if you don't want to work on a big movie like and sell your soul and not really you know, uh, get anything out of it other than perhaps money, um, then – you need a you need a motivating factor, and what's your motivating factor? You know, if mine is spite, yours might be, you know, if I, uh, you know, make this fantastic movie, my hair will grow back. I mean, maybe that maybe that works for you. I mean, it, you know, everybody's got different goals. You not need you might not need anger or spite. You might have something else, but they're all valid, as mm -hmm. long as you don't tie yourself to it entirely. It's just how focused can you be? How how driven can you be by that thing? It has to be. Solid enough, really. And uh, I mean, I, you know, Gary and I here talking at school know each other a little bit outside of this podcast, and we talk sometimes. Mm -hmm. and I don't, is that unfair to say? It's definitely fair to say. Fair to say, right? Yes. But we're not like, we've, ne we've never actually met, but we've talked. Yeah. And, and um, I don't know how Gary sees me necessarily, but I don't know if he sees me as a fundamentally angry person. I don't, I don't really ever raise my voice or get excited. I don't know how you see me outside of this. You can say it. I'm not offended. No, I, I see your your anger comes across more in a subtle sarcasm and wit, not in a raise your voice type of way. You, you're, it, it comes from your intellect. Well, beneath that, there is there is resentment and anger, and it's it's based on various incidents or factors mm -hmm. in my life, and and you know. I can pinpoint what they are and go, right, that's what that's about. And that's very motivating. But you, but you, you don't seem very angry to me at all, but you might be. I mean, I, I can, you know, we've had I, conversations I where, angry, where, yeah. where, you, where you've discussed things that have made you angry. And I, and I totally understood why you were angry. And I'm not going to talk about them, obviously, but uh, I've understood why you're angry. And that makes perfect sense to me. But I don't know, like, could you, 
dedicate several years to your life just based on that anger? Could you be that focused? I'm very obsessive. Okay. Very obsessive. I mean, that's why I've put out close to 500 episodes in less than two years. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like my, once I focus in on something – it's almost like everything just goes away. Everything else around me just goes away, and I focus on this one thing. Right. Which well, what's the goal? Which, which I've learned though is now is kind of destructive to, towards myself in some ways. I have to. Kind of, of course, yeah. You got to balance that. You have got to find that balance where where the thing isn't ruining your life, where it takes over. I mean, that's what the, the making this movie did take over. Like, it was very bad for my health, and it was bad, obviously, for your wallet. And it's uh, it's not great for you emotionally. So, so I'm 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 kind of cold a lot of the time emotionally. So it, it doesn't necessarily interfere mm -hmm. um but that but not everybody is designed that way and i realize that and like if any filmmakers are listening um i know one one of the interviews i did with you like one of the film one filmmaker did contact me we had a conversation and he, he appreciated that i was realistic uh, about like how much money and how and how the system works but i never said to him so what's your motivation like how do you do this because you know you can make a small amount of money, but the market keeps changing and getting smaller and smaller for small, you know, for independent filmmakers. And that's, it, I don't think it's going to improve necessarily based on the current market, uh, especially with inflation going up. And now we won't be able to afford, um, you know, crew members or you're going to keep making things smaller and smaller until it's just you in front of the camera. And who wants to sit through that for an hour and 45 minutes or whatever subject it is you want? How are you going to sell something like that? Um, unless you could, I guess you could put an Instagram influencer somewhere in the background. I hope that that, works out for you but probably not i know people who do that and it doesn't really translate into money yeah i haven't had much luck with any type of social media marketing right i found was found the less that i market the better i do it makes no freaking sense i mean sure i'm sorry i'm drinking some water here i, I, you can I see uh, some my maniac cop <laughs> mug <laughs> Viral marketing, Maniac Cop Two, now available on 4K. It's Blue a classic. Maniac Cop, Maniac Cop One's okay. Maniac Cop Two is one of the best B movies ever made. Hmm. Go see Maniac Cop Two. I've Maniac seen Cop, it. you could skip it. So. <laughs> Don't watch Maniac Cop Three; it was never even finished. Um, sorry, you were. I interrupted. Go ahead. Oh, I forgot what I was saying. So, so does that mean that I'm leading on this one? You are. Yeah. Oh, all right. Um, so I guess when I, when I was talking to the, uh, the other guy, the other filmmaker who has been on your show, I won't out who it is, but, um, uh, you know, I didn't ask the question about like, what is the motivating factor? But I was wondering that, like, you know, I've thought about, you know, having, having my own show and, and asking that sort of question. Um, uh, I mean, you know, having a podcast, as you know, is, is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what's, what's the benefit? I'm like, well, would it be to promote my uh, future film or, or talk about like, what's the thing that I'm interested in talking about? Like, what did I want to learn um, or get out of people or want them to talk about because I'm big into interacting as much as possible in order to not necessarily find a common ground because I don't think common ground is, is relevant or necessary most of the time. And I think a lot of people now are really shut off from um, anything outside of their echo chamber for a number of reasons. But one of them uh, that I've observed, especially with younger people, is that they don't like um, people who don't agree with them. <laughs> um, and they need to be 100% validated all the time. They need someone to be on exactly the same page, and they find it very threatening when someone doesn't agree with them. And I find it very inviting if someone doesn't agree with me, and I mm -hmm. don't mind when it happens. Me too. And and I wonder, like, like is that a, is that a, a being fragile? Is that where you're just so threatened by the notion that 
you aren't being validated, that, that you can't even hear what the other person says. And I don't mean politically. I mean mm-hmm. in all in all forms. I mean, you know, I, I talk about movies with people who are younger than me and I see it and they're like, they get hostile and, and they, 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 they get angry and they type angry things at you. And because I don't react, um, uh, they never get what they want out of those, those situations because I don't, I don't validate them with the anger that they're experiencing. And they want me to give them their anger back coming from me. And I don't do that. So that's just further infuriating. Um, (laughs) Uh, a friend of mine once said, and he meant this as a compliment. He said, uh, he hasn't been a long time ago. He said that I um, infuriate people on the internet more than anyone he's ever met. And he meant that in a nice way. He meant that, like, I ha- apparently had enough control over what I was saying and what I was doing was so upsetting because I did not, you know, someone tells a story about themselves and I ask questions about it and I don't, I don't go, um, I'm sorry that happened to you because I'm like, well, that happened to you. Like the emotions are separate here. Like, let's talk about the details. That's what's interesting to me. Um, and I, I'm not going to, if you just told a story because you wanted sympathy, I don't know what the point was. Cause that's really about you at that point. Yeah. If you're telling a story because you, you want to elucidate something, then that might be helpful. But most people do tell things because they want people to agree with them or they want to feel like they're part of the group. Like, oh, that happened to me, just like when blah, 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 and whatever the, whatever the story is. And they assume that their story is unique, when, of course, we know no story is unique anymore. Um, nothing that you said or did or had happened to you has not happened to thousands of other people you know, over time. And, I, and based on your podcast, Gary, I'd probably say that um, there are plenty of people who, who could, could uh, elaborate on how much more time there's really been than we're aware of. So more and more things have been repeating you know, constantly over what's the theory in your in terms of the guests you interview, how many billions of years there's been or or maybe it's only 6000. I don't know anymore. Mm, you mean as far as human existence goes or human civilization? I'm sure you've had guests on your show based on the nature of your show who talk about like how long how long the earth's been around. Now, I myself am not religious. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I mean I'm I, not the 6000 year thing. So. I, I mean, I mean, you, you've, I've heard a, a, a lot of them. I've heard everything from, you know, the traditional homo sapiens species existing for i forget i think that the, the 300,000 years is sort of like the scientific one right now that's what science would say but i've had guys like michael cremo on who wrote forbidden mm-hmm. archaeology and he'll say it's been millions of years um my guess my theory on all these things is since I don't believe that time actually exists. I believe that everything is happening all at one time. Okay. So, so, so time is just limited to um, the human consciousness ability to, per- to perceive things. It has to put things in linear order. So therefore, it, our consciousness is actually the creator of time. But time doesn't actually exist. So from that perspective, it could be the most finite amount of time to the infinite amount of time at the same time. So open-ended, is what mm-hmm. you're but the point I was making was still that if it's an open-ended time, all of these things have happened to us over and over and over. And you know, everyone thinks that uh, they've discovered something new when they when they probably haven't. Um, I don't know what was I what was what was I going with that? I guess I was kind of uh, talking talking myself into a circle there. Oh, well, I was just thinking though while we were having this conversation. Back to your movie about the dehydration on the hottest days of the year. Mm-hmm. You know. If it's the hottest day of the year, and I see women walking around sweating, I would just want to lick them all. 
I mean, are you going to ask first? Yeah, I would ask first. Okay. That would be rude. That's very important. That would be rude not to ask. Yeah. But but I mean, but, but now I'm thinking like like there's this sexual undertone of your movie. Not really. <laughs> there's a, there's sex in it sort of at the beginning, but there's not no there's no licking anything off. Mm. Um but there's body fluids. It just falls body fluids. It's very sexual. I guess you could think it that way. I mean, really people are melting from the inside in the movie, mm-hmm. but there there's yeah, a and, and that, that that in itself is that's like what love feels like, right? What M- melting? Like you're from melting the from the in- inside to outside. Well, I think love is supposed to feel positive in that way, um, mm-hmm. and this is this is melting from the inside in, in terms of you won't be around within say twelve to twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. This is a painful, which also sometimes happens with love—the wrong type of love—but it happens. What are the what are the wrong types of love? Mm, the ones that legal, get, le- the, the legal versions. The, yeah. the the one the ones that are yeah. People will pull guns on you and break your ribs and kidnap you. The obsessive types, yeah. Mm, yeah. So, I, as I said, I, I discuss things with younger people sometimes on, on social media. And, and um, I, I find, um, I'm, I'm curious about that. Like, the, they, there's this purity factor. And you, you always, I always wonder this in having these conversations. And, and uh, um, they idealize love and sex and all those things. And, you know, I'm, all, I'm all, always about... Um, you don't get to learn anything until you screw it up first. That's my point of view on it. And a lot of these people have these sort of purity thought processes and it could be religion. It could be, but the way that say virginity or, or any number of things is, is um, idealized. And, and that seems very unhealthy and it creates kind of obsessive behavior because you blow out a proportion. Cause what if you meet that person that you're supposed to be with and you do get with them and it's not good. You know, there's the I couldn't get with the person that I wanted to, and I'm obsessed with it, and I, and I can't stop thinking about it, and that often leads to the kind of violence you're talking about, or they, they lost control, or, or whatever it was, whatever, you know, uh, whether it be um, some mental issue, or it may just be that they have focused so much on um, getting this one relationship, and it either did or didn't work out initially. Like it worked, it worked out, and you know, and they fell in love, and then they had sex, and maybe the sex was bad. And then the other person was disinterested in it. And then, but they've idealized it so much. Like, what are they then living for? Like, if they have, if they have put it on a, you know, I don't mean to quote 40, 40 year old virgin here, but putting it on a pedestal is, mm-hmm. is a very bad idea. Um, and I, and I wonder, like, are there, are there conversations you can have with people or are they, or is they, are their identity too tied into, uh, their purity or, um, or, or any, you know, any kind of like, can they have a real conversation or is just everything is too sensitive? Everything is just kind of an open nerve. I can't imagine being like that. Uh, that's why I could not be a young person. Like, I'm like, I've prided myself my entire life on like being impure. Right. You know, I, I'm like the Lemmy Killmeister of podcasting. I mean, in the fact that you're dead? No, in the fact that I was just impure. Do you have a, you have a giant thing on your head like him? I want to get one. Oh, you should do it. I remember him in uh, in the uh, Decline of Western Civilization Part Two, one of my favorite documentaries. It's a great that's movie. That's also the one that's with the guy from Wasp, right, in the pool. Yep, that's the one. That's the one. That's a wonderful movie. Uh, highly recommended. I'm not big into punk, so I don't necessarily take to the first and the third one, but I do own the second one on Blu-ray because I enjoy it so much. Um, and I often, you know, I just legitimately do not care how much of that footage is faked. I just don't care. It's too mm-hmm. entertaining to care. Um, but. 
uh, it's pretty obvious that they kept the camera uh, far away from Lemmy because if you got close, you know, we wouldn't be able to look at it. <laughs> so when they're interviewing Lemmy, he's he's about 40 feet from the camera. He's like standing on a hill and he never gets any closer than that. And you think to yourself, I wonder if that's because they knew it would be a bad idea to get too close. <laughs> We've got to be able to look at things. So if that's a visual goal for you, Gary, I guess, you know, that may have been the best he ever looked, right, in 1987? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't. I, I didn't follow his career as he, as he got older, mm. so I don't. I don't know if uh, the visual became, you know, the equivalent of what probably was happening on the inside. Of him. So, so you think that the younger people have an ide- idealized relationships and love and sex more than our generation? Not necessarily. I just think that not in that part. I think that they there there is a um, they do feel threatened by uh, um, the idea of people disagreeing with them, but that's different than, you know, a religious adherence to purity and all that sort of thing. Um, I might not be on the same train you are in which I, I, I uh, need to be bathed in filth. If that's your modus operandi, if that's what you're always, always, I don't have that in me, but I don't see the advantage of living a pure life. It doesn't, I don't, uh, it, it, it seems a little wrongheaded to me, but also it, it, it just sets you up for disappointment. And I've already got sort of low expectations in the way that I uh, interact with people. I, you know, I assume everything's going to go wrong. So I plan for it to go wrong. And I always try to be three or four steps ahead, assuming that it's gone wrong. And where am I going to be? So I assume this interview is going to go wrong. Right. And I'm like, uh, I got to have nine or 10 things that I'm going to talk about in case Gary has a stroke on the air. And then we got to pretend like nothing happened. <laughs> and of course, the problem becomes then who's putting out the episode. Uh, uh, assuming, you know, it's being recorded. Is it being recorded? I'm assuming it is. Oh, shit. I forgot to hit the record button. Are you being sincere? You forgot to hit the record button? I hit the record button. Oh, okay. Well, I, go ahead and leave this in. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually it says this at this, this being recorded, but I didn't see it. I, I use a digital recorder. That's all. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, in case that had happened, in case I got to carry the interview, that's fine. I've, done, I've been in a situation like that where I, like, I've done all the talking. I'm like, okay, I have this is too. I've had guests that give me like the one word answers. <laughs> well, at least when you're interviewing me, you know that I'm not going to do that. Like, me and Matt, I think both had the same worst guest of all time. I think I think there's a. I wonder if it's the same guy. He had like some some podcast, and he would just give one word answers. All he would the time. give one word answers in on Matt's. It was even better because Matt had video. Right, there was some woman who was like, his, his, his sister was behind him. Walking around naked. naked. Yes. <laughs> he told me about that. There's, there's another tip. The reason I remember that, I have a very good memory for a lot of things, but, but one of, the reason I remember that specifically is, and I recommend this to people who do podcasts or do interviews or whatever, is to listen to your own interviews. I think it's very helpful. And it's not an ego thing. You start to learn. I do it. Um, you start to learn uh, what you sound like and when you were sharp and what that sounded like to the audience, you got to be, you got to be able to hear how you sound like what, well, I was totally focused and I was on message and I, I said this and because, you know, all of this promotion is really just a, a farce in its own way. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it's fake. It, 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 you know, my appearance on this show lends credence to Gary in the same way that, that Gary lends credence to me by my be my, by me being on the show. Right. It's this mutual yeah. incestuous thing. And that's kind of accepted. And that's not bad that I'm describing it that way. That's just the nature of what this is. So there's a there's an inherent phoniness to this. So you need to learn what is the phony thing that you're selling. 
It may not be what your actually your actual product is, but you need to know what sounds the best. You need to figure that out. And one of the best ways to do it is to listen to how you described it when you were either completely focused or not so focused. Or maybe you said something when you weren't so focused that you were like, wow, I got to do that. I got to work that in. So I got to make that sound natural the next time I'm interviewed. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's a weird thing that I hadn't considered before promoting. I, I, when I was a film critic, I, I, I had a podcast and I would interview people, you know, even longer than you would, um, you know, in, in the neighborhood of three or four hours often, but I would cut it uh, down to like an hour and, and change. Um, but I never, and I would listen to it, but only because I was the one editing it. But I wasn't necessarily listening to the way that I put things. But when you, when someone else puts it out, you can then hear how you're positioning it, and you can see how you respond in, in terms of the questions, because the questions are generally going to be within the same range, and you have an idea of what you're selling by that point. Usually, by the third or fourth interview, you you, you do, you you know what you're selling, and that's why I always recommend when I talk to people because people come to me, you know, who don't necessarily know me, but they see that I've been on a hundred podcasts promoting a movie. And they're like, wow, how did you do that? And I'll explain it. And they're like, well, what do you, well, how do I prepare? And I'm like, go on a couple of really terrible podcasts at first. And then you'll get used to the message you're selling. And you'll also be fine if you screw it up because nobody heard it. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. And don't promote those. I mean, I'm not saying don't promote a show that you're on. You know, be respectful. But don't put, put the heavy promotion on something if you think it went poorly or the host wasn't you know, on the same page as you. Don't that's a that's a that's a waste because it's not entertaining and it's not interesting and especially because most of the shows that you're going to be on you're going to repeat yourself so people sure. are going to give it ten or fifteen minutes before they go oh he said all this before mm -hmm. you know that's one so, of, that's that's one I, of the reasons things that I learned early on too with my guests is like most people will have like a forty five minute shtick that they'll do so that's when I started doing these longer format interviews because I found like after that once they've run out of their shtick mm -hmm. then I can get real. Real answers. When you first interviewed me, I actually noticed that. Um, I noticed it in the interview. And at the 45-minute mark, um, I had run out of whatever I was. You, you, you had been, uh, uh, we'll just position it this way, as if it were a compliment, low energy to that point. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was doing the heavy lifting. And I was like, huh, I wonder if, um, if this is going to keep going once I run out of sort of the boilerplate things for me to say. And at the 45-minute mark, what happened was I was like, I've said all this stuff so many times before. It had probably been the seventh or eighth, maybe tenth show I'd been on at that point. So I just started interviewing you um, and started asking you questions. And so I don't know how meta that got for you, where I was just like asking you questions about your scalping career. Because it was like, <laughs> I'm interested in this stuff. I don't need to promote my own thing. You know, I could talk for hours and I don't even need someone to be there. That doesn't make any difference to me. Um, but... Uh, I, I, your approach is interesting from that from that perspective because it's like yeah they'll run out, mm -hmm. but also I think that you should most shows aren't going to run two hours, so you should assume that you got forty five minutes of stories to tell, and then even if even if the host isn't necessarily helping, that you're you're going to be um, going to be able to carry it for a little bit because you'll be on things in which, which are terrible, and you just you just be like what am I doing now? Okay, how do how do I get through this? Uh, what what are the basic things that I can say? It sounds like this is a back and forth, even though I know they're I can hear them shuffling through their papers, mm -hmm. waiting for me to to wind my answer up, so I can get to the so once I get to the end, they'll ask me the next one, even though it's not related to what I just said. So how do I round this answer up in a, in, in a couple of minutes till it sounds natural? And that's one of the reasons you want to listen to your own interviews when you do it, because you start to learn where those points are. How do I round up a story mm -hmm. where I come to a natural conclusion so it doesn't sound so stiff and and uh. And all over the place. So I'm going to be honest. 
I've never yeah. listened to one of my interviews. Ever? Ever. I've never listened to them. So I've listened to my interviews with you more than you've ever listened to one of your own at all? That is correct. I've never listened to one of my interviews, ever. And in my own opinion, though, I believe that it took me about 100 interviews before I got the hang of this. So what, what, are, the, what are the improvements? Uh, one is um, because I do so many interviews, I can't read everybody's book, watch everybody's right. movie. I don't even have time to read everybody's media kits. So sometimes I, I'm jumping on and I'm interviewing people, and I don't even know who I'm interviewing. I know their name, and that's it. So I, I've narrowed it down to, you know, asking a really broad question in the beginning, let the person answer it, pay really close attention to that answer, and then start picking it apart piece by piece. And as I'm doing that, I can find out, more questions to ask because you know it's like it's just like digging deeper and deeper and deeper with through every answer i try to every, every answer a person gives me i try to think of a few new questions based on that answer i mean but you you sense that you're getting better at it oh yeah because you gotta be you gotta be i mean i guess the difference is that i can go through an interview and and i don't necessarily need to hear what your question is mm-hmm. i can just talk i can fill the time and it'll I seem know. like it's entertaining i know where the beats are I know where the beats in my own story. I know where the beats are in your when you're talking mm-hmm. because I begin to anticipate it. <clears throat> and that's one of the rough parts about like when you're promoting something is like you kind of get bored of what you're doing. Oh, you yeah. have to you have to be focused enough to go. I know I've told the story before and I don't want to tell it in a different way. That's not the way that I've already figured out works. Mm-hmm. Don't don't try to entertain myself in the situation. That's not the point. It's a real big temptation too to be like, screw it. I'm just gonna. But don't you think if you're entertained, maybe to People, listeners also entertain too. Uh, no, and here's why: uh, most of because all of this is I figured out what to say. A lot of this is pre-digested. These are thoughts that I've had before. There's nothing that's coming out of my mouth that hasn't, you know, that is new to me. Um, so I don't necessarily find it entertaining if I if I'm going to stay on message and stay on script because if the, the goal is to promote the thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you and I can have conversations outside of this arena and they'd be in a completely different nature and a completely different tone. And, and but with this, when we're doing an interview, there's an artifice. I know I'm like I'm completely breaking the fourth wall by even acknowledging the artifice of it. But uh, fine. I mean, that's what it is. And within that artifice is the we're play acting. We're play acting that, you know, if, if you and I never met before, we got to pretend like we're buddies and we get along right. and like we're going to talk, blah, blah, blah. But, I, you know, I've got. Probably in the same situation with you, I've got hundreds of phone numbers in my in my phone. People I will never speak to ever again that I might have interviewed at some point in the past. They gave mm-hmm. me the number, but the agreement of how far this relationship has gone has ended because we've conducted the interview and we were friendly, and that's it. And if they, I were to call them up and say, "Hey, let's get a drink," they'd be like, "Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Did we talk on the? Why do I know?" Well, you remember uh, in uh, 1992 when we talked. No, I don't remember that. <laughs> and I'm assuming the same is true of you, or because you've done, you know, a huge number of interviews in a short period of time. You might have, maybe you only you don't have their phone numbers necessarily, but you got email addresses up the wazoo. Yeah, so. yeah. I, it's so bad for me that that I'll, I've done it like five in one day, and by the mm-hmm. end of the day, I'll forget like who the first person I interviewed was and what the topic was. Right. But when you're, I know you don't edit, but like you've got to put it out. You must have a sense of where it started and where it began. No, I just number them. Okay, but you got to cut off the top, like 
the hey countdown to three before we start talking and oh we're wrapping up here and then you have the, you know you cut up the end of the no, conversation. No, I don't do that. Okay, it's all there. Do you get you get a, viewer, a, a listener complaints? Hey, this went on too long and it was rambly. No. Okay. No. Well, how do you know if they're listening? Um, you I don't get, get complaints. You know if they're listening. If you don't yeah. get death threats, you know you're no. not making an impact. No, I, I, I get compliments. Okay. I get fan mail. Good. Oh, that's good. You know, people people put money in my PayPal account. All right. Well, then you get then you are getting you know, something. Out of it. Um, I, I have I have you know just people sending me stuff. It's great. I get free books in the mail. Publishers call me. Are you reading them? I read some of them. Yeah. Okay, but after usually after the the interview is already been conducted, yeah, it's you usually, forgot who it's they usually, are. It's usually after words. Yeah. yeah. If if they really catch me during an interview and get me interested, then I'll read it. If they, well, hopefully you know, one day that's you'll, one of the interesting things. Like it's like okay, go ahead, sell me your book now. Right. And I mean you, that is if, the job. And if you yeah. successfully sell me your book, I'm going to read it. Right. But you have to be interesting outside of the sales pitch. Yeah. You can't just yeah. be like reciting it now. There, it's the two parts, and I guess maybe am I giving a primer on how to how to uh, be a, a, a guest on it on it on a show in which you don't really know the host? Maybe I am. I'm not sure. So anyone who's listening, <laughs> feel free to call Gary and complain that I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah, this number is is five 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 one two three four. I think that's what the phone number is, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh. Yeah, because you you have that balance where you got to seem like an interesting person, and it's got to be sincere, and and obviously nothing I say is sincere. Like you can't even tell. Can you even tell? Like I might be dry enough, or most, most people can't tell. I used to have my my website was a regrettable moment of sincerity because my reviews mm-hmm. were frank and direct, just kind of like me. But nobody, when I'm speaking to me, can necessarily tell that I'm because you can be dry enough where I the always joke is I always think you're sincere. Always. Yeah, but it's not true. I'm not always sincere. Really? That, that you, you laugh when I make jokes, so I know that you, you know that I'm kidding. Right. But the, the tone never changes. No, it changes. You're very, Does it? Yeah, yeah. Does my tone never change? Yeah, it does. I can tell when you joke. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, it, was, it was frustrating the other day. My, my girlfriend was watching a, a video that, that I, had, I had auditioned for something more than a decade ago. Um, and uh, not an acting piece. Like, it was a critic thing. And, and like, I had to answer questions. And it was, it was, she thought it was very funny. Uh, and it was before we knew each other. So, so, you know, there isn't, she wouldn't be aware of it necessarily. She would, she heard the story, but she'd never seen the video. And, and she watched the video. It was a couple of minutes long and she was laughing through it. And I was cringing. And the reason I was cringing is not because like, oh, it's the younger version of yourself. It's, you know, from like 2010. Yeah. But the reason I was cringing is because I was telegraphing all my jokes with facial expressions. Mm-hmm. And I hope that I have control over that now. I hope I'm not, I'm not doing that i think i think i've gotten better at it to where like like i'm not like mugging because in that video i was mugging uh, and it drove me nuts to yeah, watch yeah it. you gotta you gotta keep that pan face yeah and and I, I i guess i don't know like can you like do i mug when i'm making a joke no you or don't. not really no. i've got it i've got it under control no, yeah yeah, maybe yeah, yeah yeah do i um i can tell when you're gonna do it actually there's a lead up hmm. um, we're both we're both equally dry i think um, uh, I mean, I get the difference is actually that I don't laugh at very many things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more of the guy in the audience going, that's pretty funny. I might laugh like if it really caught me off guard, but it, it, usually the things that make me laugh are really stupid. Um, things that are very clever rarely make me laugh. 
But I think that's the nature of that. I'm guilty at laughing at myself, even when it's really bad. I mean, you, you so know, so I, I, like, I yeah. so I almost humiliate myself. Well, do they not know? Do they notice? Yeah, the people, people who, notice. Yeah, that you're laughing at because you, you, you're drawing attention to yourself at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, I, I laugh at discomfort at both my own and other people's, um, and so I'll find things that you're not supposed to find funny to be very funny. Yeah, me um, too. You know, just darker things, things are just that, that are inappropriate in a, in a particular way. And you're like, yeah, I think that's, I, I, will, I will laugh at that. But why are you laughing at that? doesn't make you a bad person. Like, no, I'm just reacting differently than you are. What's wrong with that? I'm not, I'm not undermining the cause of whatever, whatever your problem is by, mm. by laughing at it. I don't think so. Um, did we, are we at the, the point of the 45 minutes where I've done my pitch? I guess I haven't really pitched again. I start, it's time yeah. to pitch again, isn't it? Have you, have you plugged your movie? <laughs> It's Isn't been, that why you're here? Yeah, it has. I did. I did do it like early, so I'll do it again. So the film is called "Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me." It's a horror comedy about a viral pandemic in Philadelphia. If you've been listening this far, you've heard my pitch already. But just go to uh, Zumo, which is part of Comcast, or just look, Google it, or go to waitwaitdon'tkillme.com, and the links are directly there. You can probably stream it on your through Chromecast or however you're watching it through Amazon Fire Stick. You know, any number of ways, and watch the movie and have a good time. And if you make it all the way through, uh, you know, I'm proud of you. And I probably made, you know, three cents on that. So thank you. Three cents. Maybe. Depends on where the ad breaks are. So the way it works with Film Hub is you get to choose where your ad breaks are. And I was very careful. Like I went to the frame of where I wanted my ad breaks. Because if you ever watch those advertising ones, uh, they're called AVOD, Advertising Video on Demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones like if you're watching on Crackle or if you're watching on uh, Tubi. Or, and the ads just come at random in the middle of a sentence. Um, and the first time I got a smart TV, when we got a smart TV, we watched a couple of movies that I'd seen and liked and I, she'd never seen. And the, the, it was so distracting because they would, they would just go like, like someone would be say, and I'm going <laughs> to, and then it cuts commercial, it cuts to some very loud political or local like vacuum cleaner commercial or whatever it was. And then they cut back two minutes later after you'd lost whatever they're screaming about. I'm going to kill you, you know, but they wouldn't even say going to, they'd go kill you. They're like, who's that? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> There's no natural commercial break. So the advantage of Film Hub uh, was that you could choose your commercial breaks. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean the streaming service will obey where they are. Mm-hmm. But I chose, I think, probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 commercial breaks throughout the movie that come in natural points where I don't mind if a commercial were to interrupt at that point where there's kind of a ha ah, break. So, 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 so is it like in between scenes? Like from one scene uh, to another, yeah, basically? That, that's where I chose it. Yeah, I chose it when there'd be a transition or like an establishing of a new location. That, I find that that's probably the best best time to do it if you're going to put where your ad breaks are. But that, just because I chose them there doesn't mean that the, the service itself, wherever it ends up, because Film, Film Hub will keep adding streaming services, and I'm sure the movie will leave them if it doesn't make enough money there or whatever uh, over time, and then you have to hope that uh, newer places will pick it up, and it's it's a slow process. Um that uh, it'll uh, that some of them will at least obey the commercial breaks. I was uh, very adamant about. I want it to be exactly right because uh, otherwise it'd just drive you nuts. Because you you make a movie for years and and this one took like seven years, and you do that and then uh, all of a sudden it's arbitrarily interrupted with commercials. And you're like, what was the point? Why did I bother caring about that? This thing is already so super compressed it doesn't look like what I intended. Now you're interrupting it at random in commercials. Now it doesn't look it doesn't look so bad on some of these streaming services. I don't want to undermine it, but you know you're always basically like saying uh, the the version that uh, uh, I exported, uh, the final version is like 125 gigabytes. Right. 
and it's a 102 minute movie. But the version they're running on streaming services is at best seven gigabytes um, most of the time, even at 1080p. If you're watching at 720p, it's probably three. Really depends on on what what you're watching. I don't know if you've got the option on these various other streaming services. I think Amazon gives you some options too. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it can be a little frustrating in terms of that. Like, well, if it's going to interrupt it, you know, it varies commercially. You're starting to look in your age, like Tommy Chung. I'm sure people tell you that, right? I think I'm getting better with age. What looking like Tommy Chung? Mm-hmm. You should interview Tommy Chong. You know he's on Match Show every so often. Just I know. It's like it's like it's like looking to a young mirror. I never thought of myself as looking like Tommy Chong, but possible. But you got you. You can see me. Like we're doing a Zoom call. We're doing video, so I can see what Gary looks like and he looks like me. And I, and 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 can you? But looking at yourself, can you see the Tommy Chong resemblance? I can now. Now that you mentioned yeah. it, yes. <laughs> All I need is a big joint. Yeah. <laughs> And, I mean, you're, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I will say this. Knowing where you live, I will say that I think you're in a state where that might be theoretically legal. Actually, well, <clears throat> I'll leave that part out. But, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's becoming legal here. Right. I, I, don't want, I don't want people to chase you down. We'll just say that you live in Nova Scotia. Well, no, I live, in, I live in New Jersey. In fact, guess where I'm going after this? Uh, you're going to um, a hockey game. No, I'm going to see. Con- I'm, I'm going concert. to. I'm going to Seaside Heights. Okay. Because today was the grand opening of Snookies from the like, Jersey Shore. Like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, she opened up her own place on the boardwalk. And so, you're going to go celebrate it. Exactly. Okay. That's the New Jersey I mean, thing to do, right? I mean, sure. I'm not much of a homer, so I don't, I don't, I don't have that instinct in me. Like, oh, it's the most New York thing to do. Oh, it's the most. I don't do that kind of thing. No. But if that's in you to do, then then that seems supportive of her business. What what exactly is she selling? I don't know. T-shirts. Oh, okay. I have no idea. <laughs> You're just gonna go because it seems like the right thing to do. Exactly. You know what I say to that? Congratulations, capitalism. You won. Capitalism always wins. Yeah. I mean, we're gonna go. We're gonna go buy something. What are you buying? I don't know. No, I'm not gonna buy anything. I'm just gonna walk around. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I'll, I'll get an ice cream cone on the boardwalk. I guarantee you okay. that because I love Coors ice cream, and I've been okay. waiting. And it and it is warm today. And I've been so waiting six years be for excellent. Coors ice cream cone. Six years. Oh, I was in Alabama for the last five. I mean, I knew that, but I didn't know what the audience that. I, I wasn't going to reveal that. But Then, um, you know, I moved back here, and it's been closed all winter, and it opens because mm-hmm. you know, it's Memorial Day weekend. So mm-hmm. Now I can finally get my ice cream cone. You just let out when it was being recorded. We're going to – people now know when this is being recorded, Memorial Day weekend. Yes. Do you think it's Sunday at do four you, something. Do you think they'll care? I don't think so. I don't, so. Think, so. I don't, I don't think they'll be that far in it, where I am, it's five o'clock actually, Sunday at five o'clock. Me too. Yeah. Well, we knew that we're on. we already knew what coast we were on. <laughs> that was a surprise. <laughs> we we announced that one before. Yeah, I can't unsee your Tommy Chongness anymore. It's impossible. Maybe I could do a cameo in one of your movies as Tommy Chong. I mean, I, and that I might even that might get you sued too. What if I just credit you as Tommy Chong? <laughs> 
I know that you, there was a, uh, you have to be careful about names that you use because people could say, well, it's, it's based on me, but you know, you're only going to get sued if you, if you make a lot of money, like, you know, if you use a full name or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm always reminded of the, uh, two live crew incident, which I'm, I'm not one to use profanity on shows, but I guess I have to, cause it's two live mm-hmm. crew show. Uh, so they had a song called fuck Martinez and a bunch of guys named Martinez sued them because <laughs> they thought they were talking about them. And it's like, I mean, he could have been talking about you, but really Martinez is a pretty common name. And, uh, so you do have to be careful with that. So I guess I could cr- credit you as Tommy Chong, mm-hmm. but only if Tommy Chong cared what it matter. It's that Dreisand effect we were talking about earlier. Like, are you drawing, drawing the right attention? He has to care. Right. You wouldn't want me replacing him. I mean, when was the last time Tommy Chong, like Tommy Chong, after he and Cheech broke up, became a director, and he made a lot of not very good movies, like Far Out Man and other things like that. Just basically him reprising his his stoner character over and over and over in a series of you know vignettes and hijinks and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know if he's uh, been productive in that arena. I think he, I think him and Cheech are doing another Cheech and Chong movie. I know they did some animated stuff, but that's obviously a little easier. To yeah, do. but I know they're making. I think they're making a real movie now that weed is becoming illegal. I mean, what would be the point, though? I don't, the, I don't, the counterculture nature of it is the idea. Like, if everybody's like, "Oh, well, now everyone can smoke," but what's the joke? I don't know. Maybe just reverse it. Maybe right. do. A, I mean, re- capitalism weed movie. Right. They have. They had. They have one. One good movie they did, Up in Smoke. I think we can all agree on that. Next movie, Cheech and Chong's next movie. Could not sit through that one. Tried, I love that one. Not. Isn't that the one? That's the one is it, which one has the ice cream truck where he's telling his tie sticks at an ice cream truck? Is that up to smoke? Maybe. Was that still smoking, the one at the film festival? I don't that know. one's really hard to sit through. I don't know. But up in smoke has, like, the, you know, he's being followed by Stacey Keach. And they're, they're like, you know, uptight dudes who, who, who are going after the, you know, various ways that the, and they get stoned because the, the van is made of weed. Um, but if you don't have. You just got a bunch of laid-back cops who don't care. What exactly are you pushing against? What's the joke at that point? I don't know. There has to be some jokes, though. Right. I mean, but that's the whole thing is, you know, movies need conflict. If the conflict is Mm -hmm. the thing that we got famous doing is no longer illegal. Well, maybe maybe that could be the conflict, that they're against the legalization of weed because it takes away the conflict. I mean, that's that would be interesting, but I think only for a couple of minutes. That's kind of one joke. They're like, well, we, we're, we're 82 years old now. And we're making a movie about the fact that we wanted to go back to being illegal, but we won't be seen as counterculture because we're 82 and anything we, that comes out of our mouth is inherently conservative anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Movies have been made less than that. <laughs> I'm giving an anti-pitch here. Cheech and Chong, don't do it. <laughs> Call it re reefer madness or something like that. Just make us right. make it make a drug scare film in order to make it legal again, and then and then so they can they can make their counterculture movies, but they're like they're in their eighties. What do you think is the worst movie ever made? Um, well, the, when I wrote criticism, the worst movie I ever saw was called Arlington Road, but I know it's not technically the worst movie ever made. It's just the one that gave me the least amount of entertainment or pleasure. It's the most aggravating. That's with uh, Tim Robbins and Jeff Bridges hmm. and Joan Cusack. It's a it's a it's a mad bomber movie. Um, but, um, you know, the worst movie ever made is the answer to that is always what's the most boring movie ever made. Cause that's mm-hmm. because the worst, 
if you're like, oh, well, Ed Wood or The Room or whatever, you know, not the movie Ed Wood, but Ed Wood movies uh, or The Room or Troll 2 or, you know, all these things. Those aren't the worst movies ever made because they're not boring. Like boring is really the where that designation becomes relevant, the mm-hmm. hardest to sit through because then it has the least amount of value. You're providing value if it's still entertaining. Um, I have had plenty of discussions with people about like who try to defend these terrible movies as legitimately good movies, and I find that to be disingenuous. But that doesn't mean it's not a good time. I get that part. Hmm. Um, but we're in, we're in a situation now where irony has has folded into itself at times. Like there's a movie that's out right now called Morbius um, with Jared Leto, and I've not seen it. I'm not into that kind of movie, but I have seen the trailer because it played before a few mainstream movies that I saw, and it looks awful, and the reviews were awful, and it didn't make a lot of money. But there's a big push that it's like this great piece of you know, very entertaining. And everyone knows it's terrible. It's with uh, Jared Leto is like a, a doctor who becomes a vampire who kills people. Mm-hmm. Um, but now there's a, there's a sincere push that it's actually a great movie. And it doesn't seem very sincere. It seems like a joke because, you know, it's a memeable movie because it's very silly. But mm-hmm. I have had conversations with people who, who insist that it's in fact good. And that's what I mean by irony has, has dissipated where, where, Somebody ironically likes a movie so much that they tell themselves that they now legitimately like it. I don't know what that is anymore. I don't know. You know, I want to say, like, what did you think of the movie Capote? Uh, I because everybody raved about it, and, right. and and so I watched it, and I don't. Know, I swear, like the first fifteen minutes, I was looking at a freaking chair leg. Are you sure it was like not a bootleg copy or something like that? No, it was a real copy. It was just like, oh, okay. it seemed like 15 minutes anyway. It's like, oh. how long is it going to take for this cameraman to zoom in? Because to- <laughs> <laughs> I did see that when it came out. And I thought it was okay. I mean, I knew the story. Um, I, I'd seen the movie In Cold Blood, so I knew what they were kind of mm-hmm. covering. Um, I thought that uh, Phil Hoffman's performance was, um, you know, a little broad and campy. And that's kind of the point. Um I wouldn't say it's even one of his best 15 performances, but you know, you, you win Oscars for, uh, um, uh, for playing real people. And that's generally how it works. It doesn't really matter if you're any good in it, but you know, he built up a, such a strong resume of character parts to that point. So I have no problem with him winning an Oscar for it. It's not really a movie for me. Now I really like the director's next movie, which was called Moneyball. I think that's terrific. Right. Yeah. That's it is a favorite. good movie. That's one of my favorite movies. Um, and I'm, I'm a baseball person, but I don't think it's important to like baseball to like that movie because it's really about other things. It's really about the same thing that the social network is about, which is the nerds took over. The nerds took over the culture. We're now living in this. And, and those are both, you know, those are both period pieces because they're both, you know, Moneyball takes place in 2002 and the social network takes place in 2000. And that's about the time that, you know, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings culture became mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. And so it became okay for everyone to be nerdy. And then the actual nerds, like, kind of taking over li- our lives through owning social media and all sorts of other facets. But it became – Moneyball is essentially about um, how uh, the people who are considered experts can be beaten by just math. Now, the end result of Moneyball is the reality of it is that y- you can't account for luck and you can't account for all sorts of things with math. But you can account – over a long season with math, and that's what that's what that proves, and it also proves that you could study something, and uh, and that can beat um, actual experience. 
mm-hmm. which is sort of nerddom in and of itself. So that's why I find Moneyball to be interesting. I also think it's very funny and full of lots of great dialogue and lots of great little moments. And I think Phil Hoffman, in a small part as a manager, is also very, very good in it. But uh, I don't. I, to answer your initial question, I didn't particularly care for Capote, but I mean that guy had made a documentary uh, that I find fascinating that I've seen a couple times called The Cruise, which is about this guy who um, does bus tours in New York, Timothy Speed Levitch. It's the same director, and it was shot on video, low, very low budget, shot over clearly period a couple of years. And this guy just goes on these long rants about New York City, giving these bus tours, and they're fascinating. They don't know, and, and it's interesting because he's like a, a very sort of energetic, effeminate character in the same way that Capote is. And I wonder if they saw that and went, "Oh, you could do this," mm-hmm. because it's very similar. And that's the only sort of you know connection between the two, I would say. Although obviously it's a lot more money in the in the movie of Capote, um, but uh, yeah, I mean I I wouldn't anyone I wouldn't say anyone should go out of the way to see Capote. There was another movie that came out around the same time also about Truman Capote. It's a biopic called Infamous that you know wasn't as good, but yeah, you know, I, I learned just as much about Truman Capote from it. I, I, yeah, I'm not big into biopics. I'm kind of the wrong person to ask for that. There, there, there's no um, like. We keep seeing those trailers for this Elvis movie that Baz Luhrmann made with Tom Hanks as, as the colonel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks awful. I'm sure it's going to do pretty well. Um, but I don't know how after Walk Hard you can ever make a musical biopic ever again. Um, the one with John C. Riley, which is hysterically funny, which is a parody. Of, and it's it's one of the you know funniest movies of that era. And it, it covers all the cliches and it does all of them so well. And the music's really funny in that movie. So... I think if that had made a lot of mo- a lot of money and it did pretty poorly, that maybe musical biopics would have gone away for even longer than they had because it's kind of making fun of Ray and it's making fun of um, uh, the one about Johnny Cash and just you know all the various biopics over time and like when you watch the trailer for uh, uh, the Elvis movie, it just looks like hey you were just watching Walk Hard and you just decided to make that about Elvis basically. I don't- <laughs> So to your audience, if you've listened for this long, go just rent Walk Hard. You're going to have a good time. It's probably on Netflix. Very funny. What is the best movie that you've watched this year? Um, like a new movie or in general? New a new movie. movie the best Something movie I've new. seen in the last in the last year, the best movie I saw was Red Rocket. Never heard um, of it. So it was with Simon Rex. Uh, it's by the same guy who made uh, Tangerine and The Florida Project. Hmm. Um. And Simon Rex is playing this porn star who's who's uh, ha- is on the run, and we don't know from whom. And he's on a bus back to his hometown. He's got nothing. He just tries to wrangle his way into his ex-wife's house. His ex-wife has uh, got a drug problem, and she's living with her mom. He's a lot older. And he just tries to find his way in there, and they don't want anything to, any part of him. And he just weasels his way into their lives. And then he tries to get out of, and they're in Texas, in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Uh, it takes place like around 2015 or so. So there's, uh, it's very dark and very funny. Uh, it's not for everybody, uh, and I'll tell you why. It's because he, he, uh, there's a, there's a woman who, or a girl really, who runs a, uh, who doesn't run. He, she works at a donut shop near, near where he's selling drugs. He gets back into the drug trade. And uh, he sees that she's she he thinks that she would make an excellent porn star. So he grooms her to get into that situation where she he thinks that she he can be her like manager. And of course, they date as well. 
uh, so they can leave town and he can become a, you know, a manager of her as a, as a porn star. And it's, I mean, it got a lot of acclaim. Mm -hmm. It's very dark and very funny. Uh, I would not suggest, you know, anybody who might be offended by things to really, to, to watch this sort of thing. Cause they'll, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are a lot of points where you'd be like, Oh God, Oh, that's rough. Or, but you know, my girlfriend and I were just entranced by it. Just thought it was amazing. Have you ever seen that Kevin Smith film where he plays a clown and gets raped by rednecks? Are you talking about Vulgar? Yeah, that's the name of it. I don't know. I don't think he. I think he just produced that. Oh, did he produce it? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think the lead is the guy who was a. Uh, the, oh, the guy from from Clerks. Yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't seen that in I don't know whenever it came out on DVD, probably twenty years ago. Not my kind of thing. I, I don't particularly find clowns scary or funny. I found that it, movie disturbing. I don't. I don't put that out there as one of the most disturbing things I've ever watched. Like it's oh. it's been haunting me for now twenty years. Do you own it? Do you watch it every no, so often? No, no, I watched it one time, twenty well, years ago. It stuck with you, yeah. and, I, and I can't get it out of my head. What, what what in particular about it makes you not be able to let it go? Um, just this cross dressing clown with being raped by like three rednecks in a motel room. It's very disturbing. To me. I mean, yeah, that is disturbing. I mean, to, to me, I differentiate between like that kind of thing and. Uh, you know, where you're just like pushing buttons, where it seems sort of obvious that you're like, you're like, okay, let's just keep piling on the offensive things over and over and over. Like uh, uh, your, your audience might be familiar with a Japanese filmmaker named Takashi Miike, mm -hmm. who was big in the late 90s, early aughts, and continues to make movies, and some of which have, you know, uh, broken through into the mainstream, like Itchy the Killer and Happiness the Categories, and Audition was like his biggest movie. Um, and Gozu and... Uh, um, you know, he, he makes like three or four movies a year and they'll just be years of, he's just making Yakuza movies over and over and over and over. But he made one called visitor cute. And that's like, I guess to what you would call, if I'm going to use some newfangled language or some old fangled language, knee plus ultra of <clears throat> shock cinema. And it's a, it starts out with a guy, uh, talking to this girl who's, um, engaging in a sexual act with him. And like, it turns out it's his daughter and like, she's a prostitute. Um, and then it keeps escalating from there, including a moment near the end where he has uh, sexually assaulted a woman and killed her by accident. And she's dead and he's continuing. And he gets stuck because, you know, she's dead. Hmm. And uh, the only thing that keeps him going is when her bodily functions kind of let loose a little bit. Because mm -hmm. she's dead. And it just continues in that vein. And then he gets stuck again, and then he has to ask his wife to go help. And so she, she runs back to the house with this big smile on her face, and she goes to get olive oil <laughs> so, he, so he can get out of there. <laughs> and, you know, that's one of those things where it's just pushing buttons. It's just like, how much more shocking can this get? How far can we, you know? Hmm. And, and eventually you get burned out. I mean, maybe that's a thing like when I saw that movie when I was in my 20s, I was like, oh, this is fun. And I do own it on DVD, but I haven't watched it probably since I bought it. I think I saw it in a theater too. Um, and yeah, I don't know when that happens where you just get burned out. Where you're like shock value is just no longer entertaining and it just seems like empty. Hmm. Like late twenties maybe is when that happens. I mean, I just don't have time for that kind of thing anymore. Although I say that as someone who just bought the Ebola syndrome yesterday on uh, <laughs> the vinegar <laughs> syndrome sale, which is a pretty, uh, 
a, a button pushing kind of movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess I don't know, um, at what point, like what, when, when has that, you know, if, if a movie from like 20 years ago is still disturbing you, do you feel the need to engage in like pushing your, your own boundaries at that point? You know, do you, no. know, do you watch, do you watch the exploitation stuff? Do you watch like a lot of the, the movies that, that use sort of rape as a, as a central point in order to, to you know, to, to not so much. Comfortable? No, no. Okay. I mean, like I said, that one bothered me. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, then I have like a, a favorite movie that, that, that's, you know, hostile to, we are on the same page. I really I love like that movie. But why do you like that movie? I'll tell you why I did after you tell me why you did. Uh, I don't know. It is because it, it, it's one that I think is kind of like making fun of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's it's almost like like the it's making fun of itself from the first one, and I don't know. It's entertaining. It's funny. It's funny. It's gross. It's weird. It's I don't know. I, I I think that is one of Eli Roth's greatest pieces of work. It is clearly his best movie, actually. Um, and I, what I really like about it is not like, oh, well, now it's about the women. I don't care that much about that stuff. What I was interested was in uh, interested was the two guys in Hostel Two. So the first movie is a, is a boilerplate torture porn takes place in a hostel. You know, a bunch of guys think they're going to get laid. Blah mm-hmm. blah blah. It turns out to be torture room. Completely run of the mill. I don't find it particularly interesting. Um, and the second one, as you're, you're right, is that it almost seems like a parody. But it's interesting for this reason, which is, yeah, it's about women going through the same thing. But it's also about the guys who happen to do the torturing. And like half the movie is about what are the rules? What do they have to do? Who do they have to appeal to? How much does it cost? Like where do they have to be? What do they have? Do they have to get training? In the, and it just keeps going. You're like, yeah, I would be curious about how these – just absurd <laughs> notions of like this torturing thing really uh-huh. fun- how does it function like i would want to know that please tell me you're making it up anyway what's the difference mm-hmm. you know if i can sit through this because i can sit through like extreme horror films why, why don't you do something interesting with it and that's what i really like about that one i, I often question whether he actually made that movie like maybe someone else who knew what they were doing <laughs> stepped in and made that happen uh-huh. movie because it was like it's not just that this is smart it's like in it's also it's got insight in in ways that his other movies absolutely do not hmm. um, I saw um, a movie uh, last summer at a film festival like where they don't announce what the movie is called uh, Death Game which just got put on Blu-ray which is about two women who go over to a guy's house and um, he thinks they're you know just young women looking to make a phone call but then that turns into sex and then they start threatening him with Oh, well, it's statutory rape, and then they start torturing him, and then it becomes kind of a polemic about um, about how he sees women and how abusive this is and what are women to him. And it, it becomes this, and, and it's very sloppy and it's all over the place, and not all of it works, but it's really weird. And it's with Seymour Cassell, although Seymour Cassell is dubbed the entire time by, by the DP, so it doesn't sound like him. And um, uh, who, who's the who's the, the two women in it? Uh, Sandra Locke, who who was in all those early Eastwood movies because they were dating, mm-hmm. and um, well, I can't remember the, the buxom blonde who was a who's in uh, Clue as the. Um, well, I can't remember her name. It doesn't uh, matter. I would have to look it up. I'm telling um, the actors' names. That, that's okay. But anyway, so Death Game, which I found very very interesting. I'm, I'm now looking it up, so I, I can't remember her name because I, I keep wanting to call her Candy Clark, but that's absolutely wrong. 
um, uh, Colleen Camp. That's her name. So that's a really interesting sloppy movie uh, that I that I had a good time with seeing at this festival. It has a it has a whopper of an ending that I will not tell you what it is. Uh, years later, after this movie had kind of disappeared, Eli Roth remade it as Knock Knock with Anna de Armas, Keanu Reeves. And his wife at the time, not Keanu's wife, but Eli Ross's wife at the time, uh, Lorenza Iza. And it's it just totally misses the point of the original. It's not messy or sloppy in the same interesting way. It's just kind of like, well, that's an interesting story. I'm just going to redo it. So that's why you're like, I wonder who knew what was going on during Hostel 2 that this is interesting. But he's making a movie on like that seems to be uh, it was based on something insightful. And he doesn't even capture any of that when he remakes it. Hmm. And doesn't do anything interesting with it at all. It's kind of weird. weird talk rest. It yeah. is weird. Have you heard of Knock Knock? No, I haven't. Okay, it doesn't matter. So it's not. Um, worth, is it worth watching? No, but the but Death Game is Death Game. Yeah, I think you probably appreciate it. It pushes boundaries, but it's also like frequently like incompetent, but also like silly, but also smart. You're like this is this is strange because there's so much that's not working in this movie, and that's fine because it's it's different. It's like taking big swings. I'm big on like. Take a big swing, and if you don't hit, that's all right. One of my favorite movies from the last couple of years is called Sorry to Bother You, which I loved. Do you know that one? No. That's with uh, Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson. Lakeith Stanfield's working for like a, a service that like uh, makes phone calls to like try to sell you encyclopedias. And uh, he works there with Danny Glover and a couple other people, and almost everyone who works there is black. And Danny Glover tells Lakeith Stanfield, who's not su- succeeding in this, He's like, it's not working out. He's like, well, why don't you use your white voice? So he starts speaking in a white voice, but it's dubbed in by, uh, in his in his uh, version, I think, Patton Oswalt. And I think someone else is dubbed by David Cross. So he starts selling the, the encyclopedias because he's using his white voice. People are more comfortable with it. And then that starts to move him up the ladder, and he gets the interest of uh, someone named Army, a character played by Army Hammer, who runs a, a business called, I think it's called Worry Free. And the movie gets completely wild by third. It's very similar to Repo Man in a lot of ways. It's I love kind of, Repo Man. You'd, you'd love this movie then because it's big on the magical realism and it just keeps taking big swings. And I would never tell you the like, direction it's going because you would never predict it anyway. Hmm. But uh, Army Hammer runs a, a business called Worry Free. And what Worry Free is is like what Amazon actually tries to do sometimes, uh, what they tried to do in New York, where um, the whole point is they advertise that you can live where you work. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, in other words, like you don't have to go home. You could just go to the bunk that's right here. You can bring your family, which is basically just slavery. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> we progressed and, and keep, so far. <laughs> yeah, you 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 push this idea of like, and you don't you know, you don't have to worry. It's all here. But of course, if you get fired, you lose your home. <laughs> And who owns the home? I mean, it's no different than like the, the stuff in the when uh, you know when when people would own uh, mills or, or whomever would open the yeah you know, like run the, the company town store and, type of thing. Exact, it's exactly the company store type of thing. Oh well, you own the company, you you owe the company this much money, and you're buying your you know all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And and it, the, that's a movie for you, Gary. If you like Repo Man, you would like Sorry to Bother You. You'd very I'll have much to check it that. out. Yeah, because Repo Man is like definitely one of my top ten favorite movies. Yeah, this is this is a this is a a, a very uh, openly political and anarchic movie in a very similar way. Hmm. Um, in the same way that I mean, when um, I had to do something similar to Repo Man, Re- Repo Man has one of my favorite jokes in it. Um, 
and it's it, it's really just about product placement, and it's that every all the food just says food or drink on it, and that's because Alex Cox couldn't get anybody to get clearances because of the nature of the movie. He couldn't get any clearance. So when I was making Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, which you can now see on Zumo and you can see on Plex, or just go to waitwaitdontkillme.com, and you can watch it for free because it'll link to where you can see it. Uh, and I'll get I'll get the three cents if you make it all the way through the movie. I actually don't know how much I'm going to make, but we'll just call it three cents. Um, but I had to think of that because my movie was so low budget that I couldn't just put products in there because you either got to clear them or you're going to make up your own. Mm-hmm. So I was like making up my own products all the time. And you start making up products that don't actually appear in the movie because I'm like, well, I got a scene here where this guy who's who, who uh, works at the hospital, um, he's the one that deals with like uh, uh, insurance, but also like dealing with the with the patients as well. He's like a patient advocate kind of person. And so he had some paperwork in the scene. And uh, I was like, well, we're going to have a close-up on the paperwork so you can see it, so you can see what kind of person he is. And, of course, none of this ended up in the movie. But I have to create all the paperwork. Mm-hmm. So I'm in there. I literally created this in Paint, uh, in, in Microsoft Paint. Uh-huh. Uh, but I created a fake uh, company called um, Clean Bill, which is based on a, a joke I had in an old script. Um, and Clean Bill is a, both, is a combination of an insurance company and a financial services company, which is a terrible idea, health insurance, and because you know, one one is feeding into the other, and um, uh, I had a fake address there. I just used like an address that you know I knew was a real place, but then it was a PO box, and I just looked up how many people lived in that in that town, and I just made the PO box number bigger mm-hmm. than the number of people who live there, so it could never be a real address. And I had and I had a, I had a fake slogan. Underneath the paperwork for the for the clean bill company, and it said, "Your money, your life." <laughs> <laughs> now, I was pleased with that joke, as you seem to be pleased with that joke as well. And you know what? It's not in the movie. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> if it was in the movie, it'd be distracting. <laughs> but it, it was inspired by Repo Man, just going. How many? I guess I'm going to have to create a bunch of fake products, you know? Because I've got a scene in the in the movie where someone is in a supermarket and in a supermarket there's products everywhere so you can hide them only so much mm-hmm. you're going to capture something you got to cover it up you got to change so i had all sorts of you know fake things everywhere no one's ever going to notice it it's fine i don't i don't mind the movie takes place in nice town which is a real place inside philadelphia mm-hmm. um and uh there's a sign in it that says you know uh, putting the nice back in the town that's a real sign um and uh we tried different versions and it was like, there's nothing better than the actual sign. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, everyone, you know, there's like a nice town hospital, but that's not real. Like we created that sign. There's yeah. no nice town hospital. There's no nice town market. Uh, but it was just the thought of, okay, well it's gotta be within this small area. Like, you know, that's really, that's really within inner city Philadelphia, nice town. But um I wanted the, you know, when I wrote it in the script, nobody believed it was real. I'm like, no, it's a real place. I used to, you know, take the bus pass there when I would go on, uh, go back to the center city for a screening and see it every day. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you want to ask a question or, or you're just doing a Tommy Chong impression. You're just going to talk. That was my Tommy Chong impression. <laughs> 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 I, I'm just thinking like what kind of like fake products could be created that would be funny, you know? Right, but they'd be just that's the problem is they'd be distracting because it's such a minor detail. Mm-hmm. It's like what is the point of the scene that you want to make a joke about a fake product? Well, how many times can you do that? You can do it once, I think. But there's a lot of like that kind of stuff like in the big Lebowski. 
you know, where I don't know. There's like all kinds of weird shit in there. Are there fake products? I mean, they're in the supermarket. Not, not, not fake products, but but just like, um, like like when he goes in to buy buy milk, you know, it's like George Bush on the TV, going, "We will prevail." I mean, that's real. That's a yeah, but that, it's, it's that, real. That movie's a period. That's a period piece. Though. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like to me, like every time I watch it, I find something new in there. Like, yeah, but I don't, I'm trying to think of what fake product because that first scene's in the supermarket. Yeah, but, like the, the, all that no, stuff. There's no real. Fa- there's no fake products, but it's just that the 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 things in the background have meaning. I don't know. I just popped it in my head. I don't know if it makes any sense. I mean, no, but you know, we'll continue. <laughs> yeah, no, I understood what you meant. Um, did I telegraph that joke on my yeah. face? I did. You did. Yeah, I got to stop that. You gave it away. Luckily, the the, the, the the listeners would never see that I've made an expression to, when my sarcasm kicked in. Mm. So, I got to wrap this up because okay. I have to go to Snooky's. <laughs> yes, that's fine. How, how far in are we? How, how are we doing? We're doing it's it's five thirty, so yeah. we went an hour and a half. I'm yeah. fine with that. Yeah, I'm good with that too. Uh, let me get in. Let me get in a plug. Plug. Uh, uh, go to waitwaitdon'tkillme.com and uh, uh, you know go right on that main page. You're going to see where the Zumo link is and the Plex link, or you could do it through your Roku or whatever it is. But the links are there, and you can look up the movie and watch it for free. And uh, and I'll get my somewhere between one and seven cents. Some probably in a year or something like that. And uh, know that you supported an independent artist uh, who, who uh, was, was interested in uh, nothing but spite. And also, if you need a cameo in your next film, I'm available. <laughs> well, I'm trying to shoot something uh, uh, this year. I don't know if I'll get to it. Um, but that is, that is the idea, something small. I, I, think I, could uh, be, I think I could be a good creepy homeless guy. I mean, I, be- I believe that wouldn't be much of an adjustment for you, right? Well, yeah. Which I part? Mean, that's because I am a creepy homeless guy. Right. I didn't mean the homeless. I believe you have a home, though. But I, you know, I think you could pull off creepy without a big adjustment. I don't think I gotta. I think mean, I could just go. Hey, Gary, can you show up? Yeah, you I just go, got. Yep. All, all I gotta do is stand. But who are you sit playing? There, You're just playing there. yourself, and then I'll just credit you as creepy homeless guy. Should mm-hmm. be okay. Yeah, I don't. You know, I can always use extras. Yeah. I, that you know that 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 makes everything believable. The spare the. Seeing the less everyone goes, what's going on? This is empty. I can panhandle. Yeah. This is, is this during the apocalypse? I have no problem with you being a cameo in the movie. That's fine with me. <laughs> There's something else to add to my resume. Yeah. Well, what, are you in any other movies? I know you, you and I talked about like some other thing. You were looking into a documentary or something like that. But I don't know. Yeah, we were that. talking about doing a documentary on uh, looking for the lost cave of G.E. Kincaid in the Grand Canyon. Right. I don't know if you're are you, are you okay talking about that on the record or not yet. No, no, people. We, we've talked. I've done some, quite a few episodes with uh, Jared Murphy mm-hmm. and um, what's the other guy's name? Joe. I can't think of his last name right now, but he's sort of like an expert on this particular topic. I mean, you got your financing in play. You're going to go shoot it, or, or I, don't, I know you seem like you were just taking sort of a producing moniker. No, I was going to go there and mm-hmm. jump off the side of the Grand Canyon and actually try to find this cave. Oh, okay. Why not? I mean, I'm 54 years old. What do I got to lose at this point? 
I mean, if you jumped off the Grand Canyon, most things, I think. I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'll die. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, and, yeah, and, and chances are, chances are, in like twenty years, I'm going to be dead anyway. So I'm giving up twenty years of my life. Huh. Yeah, it's the it's ones at the it. end, right? Isn't it's that isn't it. that what Dennis Leary said? He said that uh, he's like, you know, every cigarette gives up three minutes of your life, but it's the ones at the end. Mm-hmm. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I can I can see uh, a, a logic in that from your perspective. Not mine, but yours. Yeah. This is this is what this is the business what we call empathy. I've got empathy for Gary here. I'm faking it, but it's still empathy. I don't know. I mean, I might be insane. I'm not sure. No, you don't seem insane because you weren't. You're not ranting and raving. No. Maybe maybe it's misguided thought, but it's your life. You do what you want with it. Yeah. Why not? I mean. Yeah. Got to do something. You definitely make the paper if you fell and died in the Grand Canyon. That was the goal. It would bring up my podcast ratings. Yeah, wear pants, though, when you do it, though. Why? Nude man found on Grand Canyon is not as, uh, is not as enticing. Hmm. I rarely wear pants at home. I mean, I you know, that, that's the thing is the shot that we've got here is... Just you know, a shirt. Only, yeah. Yeah, it's all, all a shirt. I mean, I'm wearing sweatpants, but you wouldn't know that. No, no, I'm not wearing any pants. Okay, I mean, that's fine with me. I mean, I can't, I can't. I can't smell anything. It's fine. No, I just drag my Johnson on the floor. I mean, if that's what you tell everybody, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, man, I'm going to thank you for being on. It was sure. a pleasure having it. you. As always, I always appreciate it, Gary. Thank and what's, what's the website again? WaitWaitDon'tKillMe.com. Everybody. You'll see where you can watch the movie. Just link right to it or... Uh, Use your various devices and you'll be able to watch it for free on yeah, your own time. Yeah. This movie will change their lives. I mean, that's 100% not true, but I appreciate the uh, the, the sales pitch, Gary. Thank hey, you. Anytime. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to play the outro. Okay, do that. Thank you.